0: Listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So, as Rachel pointed out in her sermon last week, for five straight weeks, the lectionary will have us reading texts about bread from the Gospel according to John started when we had the story of the feeding of the 5,000 with bread and fish, and then we headed right into what is called the Bread of Life Discourse, which takes up much of the remainder of the sixth chapter of John. And as Rachel suggested, five weeks makes for a lot of sermons on bread. And it's hard to know if it's tougher for the preacher to craft them or for the congregation to hear that much about bread. At least she and I get to share that duty. And then there's always the option of concentrating on the first reading. And so, to Ephesians, I will go. Now, unlike many of the epistles which are written to communities facing very specific and particular challenges or circumstances, Ephesians seems to speak more generally into the life of the early church. It's basically divided into two parts. The first half offers a rich theological vision built around the idea of the oneness of the body of Christ. The second half sets out what it will look like for a community to actually embrace the vision that they are one body the second half which we were into tonight includes a good deal of what might be called moral exhortations but this material is by no means disconnected from that deeper theological work it isn't in other words you know doing the theology first and now we're going to set out a bunch of rules to live by or laws that will govern a, a, a good society It isn't in any way moralistic or legalistic, in fact, but rather it's quite organically connected to Paul's rich teaching on the nature of the body of Christ. If that teaching is embraced, then here's how it can be lived. That's kind of the logic. Now, at the heart of the Pauline vision is an insistence that Quote, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs with the Jews, members of the same body, sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He sets this out in a form that sounds almost liturgical, and which in fact has been adapted as the opening section of the contemporary Anglican baptismal rite. He wrote a little earlier in this epistle, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now that being the case, this repeated one, 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 Paul is saying it's time to get on living living it. And so in the verses just before where our reading began he writes Now this I affirm and insist on in the Lord you Gentiles must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. So he's got a critical edge that he brings to that society. As Scott Schauf summarized it in his comments on today's passage, having been brought into God's people entails a transformation of identity and character. And with this transformation comes changed moral behavior. Our passage gives mostly very specific moral instructions. What makes the passage rich and not merely pedantic, is that these instructions are grounded in the earlier theological ideas. It's a constant calling back to oneness. To this, Schauf adds, both moral action and moral speech are to be guided by the principle of doing what strengthens the community. So it's not just about me or you being nice and moral and living good moral lives. It's actually about what strengthens the community. So then Paul writes, putting away falsehood, let us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members one of another. Then he goes on to offer some very particular instructions. He says, Thieves must give up stealing, instead labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Now, it gets you wondering how many thieves do they have in the church, right? (laughs) Because he identifies that very particularly. Is he talking about maybe merchants with a practice that's a little dodgy? We don't know. But he's obviously got a concern that in the community there are people who are kind of fast and loose with money. Give that up. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, he says. Put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, wrangling, slander, and malice. Among other things, what that is, is yet another one of the Bible's very strong statements against gossip. Because he knows that gossip actually is like a cancer in any community, and in churches particularly. Put that aside. But he says something very specific about anger, something I don't think I'd ever really noticed before. In spite of the fact that this text has come up 10 times over the 30 years that I've been preaching from the three-year lectionary cycle, I saw it this week for the first time. He says, be angry. Be angry, but do not sin. You see, he's not trying to kid himself here because he knows that people do get angry. So he says, be angry, but don't let that take you down. The Hebrew scriptures show us Amos angry at the greed and injustice he sees all around him. Jeremiah in full rage against the thick-headedness of the people. Moses gets angry. Elijah gets angry. David gets angry. In fact, it might be fair to say that you'd be hard-pressed to find a character in the whole Old Testament who doesn't at some point get really angry. But that's not just an Old Testament thing like, oh, in the Old Testament they were angry because they sort of had this sense of a, of a, of a justice, a angry God. And in the New Testament it's all grace and so they must be all kind. Ah, No, no. Because in the New Testament we see anger arise. In the epistle to the Galatians, Paul himself expresses his anger against Peter because he thinks Peter has waffled seriously on the full inclusion of the Gentiles into the one body. And in Acts, we can read about a serious rift in his relationship with Barnabas, where the two of them are so unhappy with each other, they go off in different directions on different mission journeys. Jesus, of course, gets angry. He gets angry at Peter at that one key moment, and he even accuses him of thinking like Satan and angers his reaction when he discovers that the temple has been overrun by the money changers and animal merchants. Anger is actually one of the human emotions that that is there and we have to figure out what to do with. From a pastoral perspective, it's not altogether unusual for people to want to talk to me about something they're angry about, whether it's some circumstance in a relationship or in their workplace or from their past or whatever. The thing is, it often comes with this level of guilt or even shame. Oh, I know I shouldn't be so angry. I know I should get over this. I know I have to forgive, but the anger is real. So isn't it something to hear Paul say, be angry. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not make room for the devil. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now that's a statement that is very familiar to me. Do not make room for the devil. Do not, in other words, let that spirit which distorts and undermines and destroys relationships and communities, don't let that have the final word. But as for anger itself, it's there. As the biblical scholar Ralph Martin puts it, you may be angry if you can't help it, but do not sin thereby. It's intended that anger should not become an obsession and nursed to the point of resulting in a fixation. Hence, Paul's allusion to the sun not going down on the day's unguarded moments. Now, I know what it is to be angry. I know what it is to be so frustrated that you just sort of start to, to bubble up, right? I'm not, by nature, an angry person. Not at all. But when anger does arise, my tendency is to, is to try to stuff it down and suppress it because it's just not very acceptable. See, the sun hasn't yet gone down, and I've dealt with my anger. I'm not at all angry anymore. Oh, boy, two points for me. <laughs> but you know what happens if you continually stuff down strong emotions, right? Oh, well, they got to go somewhere, even if you're not obsessing or fixating Legitimate anger that just gets stuffed down as if it doesn't exist can also become like a cancer, slowly poisoning you from the inside out. Ultimately, what Paul does is he acknowledges that by saying, be angry. And then he offers a call to a better way, a a more excellent way, as he will say in 1 Corinthians, but a way that's also sometimes tougher. Paul and Barnabas, they had their disagreement. They had to part ways, go off on different missionary journeys. And the sun sure didn't set on their anger as they were going off, right? Or sure set on their anger, sorry, as they're going off. It's not an easy decision to make to part ways. Would it come with a cost? Would it cost them their friendship? Might it cost them the richness of their journey? There's no sign whatsoever in the book of Acts that they came together again. Though in the epistle to the Colossians, Paul tells that community that if Barnabas does come by on a visit, they should welcome him. That says to me that the anger wasn't harbored, not for long, didn't go sick or obsessive or cancerous on him. He found a way to release it. might have taken more than a few literal sunsets to get there, to get really released, Probably no denying that there was still some hurt, a bit of a wound maybe, a little bit of regret. But it doesn't look like the off-kilter friendship, the anger in it went sick on them. That's good. Still, I'm really glad for all that he calls his readers to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, As God in Christ has forgiven you, Paul can first write, Be angry. Be angry, but do not sin, or maybe acknowledge that there is anger, acknowledge that there is hurt, and then deal with it. Anything like real tender-hearted kindness and forgiveness can only come once we've been really honest with ourselves about what we're feeling and then honestly take that to God in prayer, asking that we be truly freed to release it, to let it go, to forgive and to reconcile into that place of kindness again. Once done, we can limp our way, and sometimes it is with a limp. We can limp our way to the kindness and forgiveness that is to be our true mother tongue as one people, in the body of Christ. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.